Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come before your word that you would instruct us and you would teach us, Lord, that you would exalt your Son before our eyes, Lord, change our hearts' affections. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit we would be transformed again, renewed, sanctified for your purpose, God. Lord, we ask you do this with your word today. In Christ's name, amen. It just keeps sounding weird to say this, but greetings from the far north. Although, that being said, it always feels like you're coming home when you come down here. God has called us to be brothers and sisters, and when you're with brothers and sisters for such a long time, it's hard to not think of you as brothers and sisters. And who are these other people? <laughs> brothers and sisters, too. But growing. So, um, during this Christmas season, we've been trying to tie together the theme of expectation. That there was expectations surrounding the coming of Christ, and when he came, expectation of what this was going to mean. And so we're just kind of continuing this theme, expectation. Jesus was the promised Messiah when God was putting into action all of his promises and fulfilling them. Well, mostly. He fulfilled a lot of his prophecies, fulfilled a lot of them, but not all of them, and some of them not completely. Like, there's some prophecies. If you read, as we've been going through Matthew, that there'll be times that They'll talk about Jesus doing something and stop. And then if you read in the, the prophet, you're like, wait, but what about the next part? That sounds great. And it's just like, hold on, slow down. He will get to it in due time. But the fact that he did in the first place and fulfilled the first part means that he's going to come and he's promised that he'd fulfill the second parts. So the coming of Jesus established hope because God is doing it. God is saving his people. And the scope of his salvation is not just for one corner of the earth, but The scope of his salvation, the gospel, is to reach into every corner of humanity. And so that is the basis of our hope, that God is acting to save all the families of the earth. And so now the question is, what do we do? How do we live in light of this? Because at times it seems slow. This world's still messed up. There's sin and sickness and corruption and all these things that drive you nuts. And then... We tend to forget in the middle of the week. I mean, we're talking about like Thursday at 2.35 p.m. Like you're in the middle of the day. You're not even thinking about the promises of God or how it affects your life. You're just in the middle of a busy day. When God set up his calendar for his people of Israel, there's just, it was punctuated again and again by celebrations where they would remember things that they've remembered every year over and over again. They would visit things Because God knew that we are quick to forget. God knows that we need to be reminded of these things again and again and again. And I was studying for this sermon, 1 Thessalonians, and it was like the first book when I remember as a teenager where I really dove in deep with a Bible teacher and like, oh, this is amazing. It's amazing how much you forget if you spend time away from it. God expects these truths to be woven into the very fabric of our being to guide the impulses of our hearts to inform the patterns of our thinking. And the only way that happens is by revisiting these things again and again and again. So today we're going to continue our series in expectation, and I just gave it away. We're going to look at first the first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you turn there. You've got one of these. It's page 681. Now, some context. We're going to read 
I was thinking about this. It's a short letter. We're going to read it because that's neat. Um, but some context first. Who are these Christians at the city of Thessalonica? This is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Um, the church at Thessalonica was established on his second missionary journey, so he's going through. And Paul had, like, he was intending to go one direction, and he kept saying the Spirit of the Lord hindered us, the Spirit of the Lord would not allow us. And they're confused as to what they're supposed to do. And then God gives them a vision from a man from Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia and help us. Paul and his people said, well, that must be where we're going. So they get on the boat. They go to the region of Macedonia. And there's two churches in particular that are important there. The church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica. The first church that they found is the church of Philippi. And it was going really good until it wasn't. And there Paul was arrested. You can read this in Acts 16. Um, the gospel was spreading, the church was growing, and people took notice, and persecution started, to the point that Paul and his Silas were um, arrested, they were put in jail, they were beaten, and then they found out that they were Roman citizens, and that was illegal, which just happened, and they said, okay, we're sorry, you're a Roman citizen, we shouldn't have beat you, but you need to leave the city. So under persecution, they had to leave Philippi, and so the next city after this persecution was Thessalonica. Now, when they come to Thessalonica, um, and this is, I'll just read you the portion from Acts 17. It says, Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there's a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken their money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they were there, for about a month. And then the rabble started and they got kicked out. So it was, it was a very short stay. Now, there are a lot of similarities between this church in Thessalonica and our church. For example, Thessalonica was a wealthy city. They lived in a wealthy country. They were protected by one of the strongest militaries in the world with one of the most advanced systems of law created so far in history they had a strong sense of security and they had a strong sense of cultural identity and cultural pride. The culture at Thessalonica was highly sexualized. And sexual relationships outside of marriage was normal and rampant. And then the church, in terms of its allegiance to King Jesus, because of their departure from public worship, because of their departure from the ethics and ethos of that society, it put them in square into the target of 
the public square, and they began to be persecuted both socially and legally, and they were fined for their participation with association with King Jesus. And while there's similarities, there's also some differences, and the differences is in degree. But though we, in a sense, sometimes feel like we have it bad, let me tell you, they had it worse. In terms of relative wealth, it far exceeded anything that we have here in California, much less Fortuna. In terms of um, military powers, I mean, Rome was the unstoppable and conquering even still. The, the nation, the, Rome was still expanding, and they had taken down the biggest nations of the world. Like We were concerned at time about China or Russia. Rome just took out China or Russia, and they were feeling pretty safe. The culture wasn't just highly sexualized. They had public expressions and practices that were very debased in terms of pedophilia was openly accepted and practiced and celebrated. And the persecution facing the church was more intense than anything that we have yet to experience in America. Not only were they sued, but they were beaten and often, and very soon, martyred. So Paul had one month with his church. It seemed like barely enough time to establish the ground rules. One month of this church. How much discipleship could you get done? Well, if you're Paul, you get a lot done. But, you know, still, one month with these Christians, who were, and he had to lead them in a culture that was hostile to their faith with an attraction of the world that was trying to draw them back in. And that is the reason why Paul wrote First Thessalonians. Now imagine, in Thessalonians, you had Paul for a month, he's gone, and you've been on your own. God has been with them. God's been helping them grow. But what a relief it would be to receive this letter. And considering that we have this letter still, they cherished it. They loved it. They didn't just read it once say that was nice. They read it again and again and again and passed it on to churches. So let's read 1 Thessalonians. The book is divided into two parts, sandwiched almost as it were like a Big Mac with like three prayers. Although the first is like, like a prayer that... Paul had prayed, and there's two prayers within it that kind of mark these transition points. So, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor and love and the steadfastness of hope and our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word with much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we do not have to report concerning anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But although we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, 
We had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or at any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor for a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from other people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you also the gospel of God, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct before you who believe. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner of the worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ that are in Judea, and you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen, countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, who drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, and for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, with great desire, to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one may be, um, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as, as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, this has brought us the good news of your faith and the love reported that you always remember us kindly and that you long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return for God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply was lacking in your faith. Now may, and this is the second prayer, now may God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 
Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and aspire to live quietly and and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to, uh, to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their works. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, so that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ for you. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies, but test everything, holding to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now the verse I was assigned to preach. (laughs) Now may the Lord God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There are two themes. Three. Depends how you want to label them out. There's two themes in this book. It returns to again and again, sanctification and hope. Sanctification and hope. Sanctification and hope. And he lays these before them again and again. And if you want to call another theme, one of the themes would be love. That they excelled in love, and he told them to excel in love even more. But you can consider love as part of your sanctification, and we'll see that. We are called to sanctification because we live in an impure society, and there's impurity in our own hearts. So therefore, we're called to be sanctified. And we're called to hope because we live in a hostile society, a society that's trying to draw us in and tell us that everything is okay, but it is not. And so we are called to these things. Sanctification and hope are linked together. In this letter, you don't get one without the other because your hope motivates your sanctification and your sanctification assures you of your coming hope. Now, pause, big word, sanctification. Like, what is that word, sanctification? Because there's all these words that are big in the Bible, you know, like justification, sanctification, glorification, and it's like, assumes that you know what's going on, but let's just make it clear. What, do we, what does the Bible mean when it refers to sanctification? The idea gets brought up in the Old Testament. The first time it's referenced is in Exodus, when God takes his people and he saves them. And God says, I have sanctified you. Now, at his very core idea, to be sanctified is to be made holy before God, pure and undefiled. So if you want some synonyms, so other words that get used for sanctification, holy, that's a synonym, and consecrate, being consecrated to the Lord, it's the same word being used, just in a different context. So you could say, there's a, you know, here's a pot that's in the temple. It's sanctified for the use of the Lord, because it's set aside as holy for his Purposes. Now, what made people and objects holy? In every case, they got sprinkled with blood. The blood of a sacrifice. And then God said, now it's sanctified. Now it's holy. Because ultimately, it's pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would cleanse us and consecrate us for the Lord's use. So the Old Testament is absolutely clear that to be sanctified is not something you achieve, but it's something that God did for you. Because again and again and again in the in the Exodus and in Leviticus, God tells Israel, as they're talking about sacrifices, being sacrifices for them, God says to them again, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so too, when we're in the New Testament, it repeatedly emphasizes again and again that it is the blood of Christ that sanctifies us. First of all, it's the blood of Christ that makes us holy. And God then works in you by his Holy Spirit to sanctify you. So yes, this is really confusing. But you are sanctified and you're being sanctified. The Bible talks about it in two ways. Theologians like to give it fancy names. There's your positional sanctification and then there's your progressive sanctification. But it's all the same thing. Now growing up in the church, I always thought sanctification, yeah, the, the, the Bible's primary emphasis on sanctification was the ongoing act of sanctification. Like, 
becoming more and more holy and pure. Now, yes, we're going to talk about this whole book of Thessalonians about this ongoing process of not acting impurely, but acting according to the standards that God has set by the power of the Holy Spirit. But more often, the Bible wants you, first of all, to know that your sanctification came because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks more about your sanctification because of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, outside of this book, but 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor swindlers, oh, skipped, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. It is the power of God and the blood of Christ that does those things for us. So, that being said, we still struggle with sin. We are aware, we almost don't need anybody to tell us, we're quite aware that there's a war in our hearts to desire the things that God would have us to desire. So in that sense, because of our actions, our competing desires, it also says that God is sanctifying us. And that is what we see in 1 Thessalonians. So, for example, in Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, you're doing it, that you do it more and more. Or, Chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Or again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the Lord God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a friend, we were talking, um, a co-worker, and a Christian, and we were just talking about what, what direction our lives were going to go because we were kind of in that angsty point of life where you don't know which way your life's going, and we we're kind of commiserating. And, you know, and, and he kind of said this, had this moment where he said, well, in terms of God's will for me, it's already done. I've been saved. And at the moment, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And I wish I could remember this verse. <laughs> like, God doesn't just save you and say, the end. No, he is saving you. That this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Yes, We've been justified. Praise the Lord. Amen. But we are being sanctified. And that also is God's will for you. This is something that God is interested in and something that he is doing in us. It is the trajectory of our lives from now to the the coming of Jesus Christ. Because frankly, you cannot exhaust doing good works. There's good works to abound. There's always more that needs to be done. And your inner struggle and your desire for good works and your fight to resist impurity is a constant battle for every person at every age. Now, in particular, now in particular, for the Thessalonians, 
Paul is concerned with two particular aspects of behavior. Now, this is not exhaustive. Like, sanctification is not just about sexual impurity or resisting sexual immorality. There's more to it because in the New Testament, it gets brought up all over the place. There's all these behaviors that you need to put off, all these behaviors you need to put on. But in particular, in the book of Thessalonians, Paul is concerned with two particular aspects of behavior, sexuality and love. So, we read in chapter 4, Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. And frankly, there's a lot of it to abstain from. But here's Paul talking to a young church surrounded by this stuff. He said, hey, if you need a place to start, I've got something for you. Resist it. Stay away from it. It's, it's passions that are trying to draw you back in. Don't do it. Do not be controlled by passion. Have self-control over your body. Have self-control over your mind. And so this is the way, this is the language of sanctification. Uh, you remember in Philippians chapter 2, famous passage, we've read it hundreds of times in this church, where it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have this mind, and it's yours already in Christ Jesus. So in terms of sexual morality, in terms of like the defiling passions of the flesh, you have the power to do this in Christ already because he has sanctified you. He has given you your Holy, the Holy Spirit. He's not calling you to impossible tasks, but for tasks that he has equipped you for. And we do not just have to set our gaze at a church in Thessalonica or even just to young Christians who have to resist sexual immorality because we can easily set our gaze on us. Christians today in the United States of America Resist sexual immorality. Do not let it in. In a culture where sexuality is pretty much permeated and defined almost everything, where we have a culture where couples who shouldn't be getting married aren't, you know, couples who should be getting married aren't, and those who shouldn't are in disagreement with the Word of God. In a culture where you can barely pass a day without seeing some form of sexualized image somewhere, Beware that your line of morality doesn't shift. Take heed that Paul would say, take heed if you think you stand. If you think you stand, be careful. You might fall. You are not immune. And that is behavior that we're told to put off. And then Paul also in chapter 4 tells them behavior that they're put on. So in verse 9 he says, love your brothers. Now, consider this. What has Paul already said? Something they excel in. Loving their brothers. So how much more striking is it that even though they excel at it, he says, keep doing it. Like, it's that important. It's that important that although you love your brothers, you keep loving your brothers. You love each other like family. Because, like, as family, there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be Hard moments you're going to be sinned against. You're going to sin against other people. This ongoing act of love is something that you just have to keep working at over and over and over again. As we know from experiences in any relationship, us with my brothers, we love each other. But man, we have to work at it sometimes. Love your brothers, love your family in Christ. In particular, Paul asked them, to aspire to live a quiet life, to mind their own affairs and to work with their hands so that they would not 
so that they might walk properly. That they might walk properly. Why? Because they're living in a society who's just like watching them, hawking them, waiting for them to slip and say, aha, hypocrite. He says, walk in purity. Don't be a burden to anyone. So, young church, persecution, society trying to draw them away, society trying to persecute them. Ground rules, believers, sanctification. Now, he just doesn't leave it there. He just doesn't leave you hanging, like, be sanctified. Do it. But he attaches to it hope. Hope, hope, hope. Everywhere. He like, gives you a command, backs up with hope. Gives you a command, backing up with hope. So you realize that you're not in this by yourself. So he speaks of this hope. And there's two aspects of the hope in this book. First is there's hope in light of suffering. Because there's suffering to be had. There's not even just like, there's just suffering in this world in and of itself without anybody doing anything to you. There's suffering that you can cause by your own sin and bring it upon yourself. There's suffering. Then add to it now that they've got people trying to take them down. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It it almost begs the question whether these are people who died from martyrdom. Could be. Or just people who plain up died for whatever reason. We don't know. But we do know is that grief and suffering that attends death hurts. And it leaves you in a place of despair. And it's deep and it's palpable. And frankly, death is unnatural and completely disruptive. And we face hardships. We face disappointments in life. We have a broken culture, broken families, broken hearts. Yet we know that Christ is coming and that we can be with him in his kingdom forever, together as a family. Together as a family. So we have hope. And this is what Paul says. Now this is like, yeah, I've read this a thousand times, but here's something that I like, kind of missed out on. Like, so he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know these truths. You have this hope. How often, if ever, have you spoken these words to someone and said, hey, keep holding on. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to raise the dead. We're going to all be together again with Jesus in his kingdom forever. Because apparently these are life-giving, heart-sustaining truths that we need in our day-to-day life. So there's the hope in terms of suffering that Jesus is bringing relief. And then there's the second aspect of hope, which is sober-mindedness. Because welcome to December, where everybody's promising peace on earth, goodwill to men. Everybody has an idea of how to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. Like from every politician to every professor to, you know, some guy sitting across at the diner drinking coffee with. Everybody's got ideas of how to fix everything, right? The world promises peace and security. So 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying, there is peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Peace and security. I mean, we want that. We want peace and security. I mean, we want to be able to drive to the grocery store in peace and security. Now, this phrase, peace and security, it's a slogan. This is government propaganda 101 for Rome. On their coins, they had the word stamped on it, peace. Peace. Like, so, you know, we have in God we trust, they had peace. Like, and they had the face of the Caesar. Like, you enjoying your peace? You know, contribution by your local Caesar, right? So, like, and, and you kind of felt it because, like, they had the big army. They had the laws. They had the roads. They, I mean, they were taking care of everything. I mean, it's good if you're on their side. Kind of bad if you're not on their side. But for centuries, that whole region had just been one catastrophic war after next catastrophic war after next catastrophic war after next catastrophic war. And it's war, 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 war. And then Rome comes in and just beats everybody. And for the first time in centuries, there was peace. Some people even refer to it as a miracle. Like, I cannot believe that just happened. They unified this region for so long. It was considered to be this miracle of the gods. And so... Their whole livelihood, their financial system, their riches, their security was all based upon the peace that Rome brings. And to be honest, we too trust in security that our nation brings us, which in a sense, that's what governments are for. The governments are God's institution to punish the wrongdoer. They bear the sword, not in vain. However, for all the peace and security our earthly governments bring us, in it, in every form of government, there's still an expression of sin, corruption, and injustice. It's always there, because guess who's running it? Sinful people. What is more is that everybody thinks they're okay with God, or the gods in this case. Like, yeah, like overall, we're good. We're a good society. Yeah. We're doing good things, mostly good. We'll do a little bit bad, but mostly good. I mean, right now, you listen to, like, Christmas commercials on the TV or you on the radio, because you can't get away from that, about coming together for peace and harmony and Coca-Cola or something like that, right? I was, I was in Walmart, and they were playing Joy to the World, and it hit me. They don't play Joy to the World anymore on the radio. Like, I don't know who let that one slip at Walmart, because it's like, it actually had the verse, he rules the world with truth and grace. I'm like, they're singing about Jesus? Like, they never sing about Jesus on the radio anymore. <laughs> Even at Christmas time, they have all these other songs. I mean, I, I mean, I like White Christmas too. But it just doesn't give me, like, the thrill of he rules the world <laughs> with truth and grace and that Jesus is coming. It just doesn't. The peace that the world is promising is no peace at all because it's not peace with God. The peace of this world, the reason the world is not at peace is because we're not at, the world is not at peace with God. And Paul is reminding us, we should know this, what the world is offering you is a facade. Destruction will come upon them. So sure, cash in on this world with all of its promises of the good life and know that it is all coming to an end and it will not end well. Our country, our culture, every country, every culture, apart from the, those who are saved by the grace of God, is destined for wrath. I was reminded, when I was studying for this, in the book of First Peter, there's that, he mentions 
Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Lot. Like, man, how did Lot feel living in Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, how, how did Lot find himself in Sodom and Gomorrah? In 2 Peter, which is written like many years later after 1 Thessalonians, or like almost 50 years later, but this letter, letter comes wrong. And it reminds us that God has been long-suffering. God has been enduring unrighteousness. But do not mistake that for apathy. And do not mistake that for injustice. Because God does care, and justice is coming. And then Peter tells us that he has given us distinct moments in history in the Bible that point to the fact that this would happen. So he points to the flood, where God said, enough is enough, and the whole world was destroyed by a flood. Like the time that God struck Egypt with the plagues, enough was enough, I'm saving my people, and he crushes a nation. Like the time when God poured out fire of heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, at that point God said, enough is enough. So, uh, so in first Peter, second Peter says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So in other words, like what you saw there is what's going to happen in the future to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, which pause, like really? Oh, Lord is gracious. Okay. <laughs> and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as, that righteousness, as, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So the Lord can rescue Lot, greatly distressed, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lustful and defiling passions and despise authority. Judgment is coming. So in light of all this, Paul says, be sober, be alert, be awake. Don't be lulled by the comforts of this world. He says in chapter 5, verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. That is, not intoxicated by the things this world tries to intoxicate you with. Be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, in other words, recognize that Christian, welcome to Christmas season, but you're in a war, a war for your heart, a war for your soul. But then the hope, for God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we might live with him. When we live sanctified lives, when we do the good works of God, when we keep ourselves from indulging in sexual immorality, when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we do the works in keeping of repentance, we evidence that we are not destined for wrath, but we are destined for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the opposite. If your life does not look any different than an upstanding member of our society, if you are not pursuing, if you are pursuing the same things that the world is after, if you are not pursuing first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then be warned, destruction 
will come upon you. And then notice again how Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Because this is serious business and requires community. You don't lone wolf this. You need people speaking this into your life again and again and again. So now finally, let's jump to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. So this is the prayer. So Paul, so this whole admonition, be sanctified, here's hope. Be sanctified, here's hope. He ends it all with a prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So after two chapters of admonishing them and encouraging them, Paul's readjusting their perspective because there's one thing I know about myself. I'm good at knowing what to do and bad at actually doing it. I'm good at knowing what to do and bad at actually doing it. And I do not possess in myself, by myself, the true motivation to produce good behavior. Which is why Paul prays. That is why Paul prays. Our sanctification and hope are produced by God. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And it says, not just God will do it, but he emphasizes it. God himself. God himself. By the way, God of peace, but like now you get what he's getting at, right? You got all this like, peace, peace, there's peace. And like, no, no, no. You need the peace from God, his peace. So the God of peace himself will sanctify us completely and entirely. Our whole person, both our material and our immaterial. And God himself will keep us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why will he do this? Because he is faithful. He will surely do it. How can you know? Jesus died on the cross for you. That was like big. So in this Christmas season, we recall how God fulfilled his promises by sending his son as a man to live, to die, to rise again for the salvation of his people. But let us remember in this Christmas season that it does not stop there. We are reminded again that God has sanctified his people. He's consecrated us, called us to do his good works. He's called us to be holy. There are behaviors and attitudes in our own lives that we need to put off. There's things you need to shed. And there's things you need to put on. We all have to do this. There are things that we're doing, but we need to do it better. And we need to do it more. So as we go, at like, this usually happens, like Christmas happy, and then there's like New Year's resolution. Let's just pull it up a little sooner. In December, right? Seek the Lord in this. Keep reading the scripture. Keep weighing your life by the scripture where he lays out the path that he's called us to walk. And let us, at this time at least, let's come to the table and remember again that Christ has called us, sanctified us, and brought us together as a family. A family that we are to love more and more. So, 
if you all come and worship team.